This is AgriPulse Open Mic. I'm your host, Jeff Daly. Our guest this week is California 16th District Representative Jim Costa. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by Syngenta. Syngenta Products and Services, helping farmers increase their return on investment. AgriPulse Open Mic continues with California Congressman Jim Costa next. Commodity prices remain under pressure. That's why now, more than ever, farmers are focused on their return on investment. More and more, farmers depend on Syngenta products and services designed to increase their ROI. See the Syngenta Seed Innovations, made for better ROI. This is AgriPulse Open Mic. As a member of the House Agriculture Committee and Subcommittee Chair of Livestock and Foreign Ag, California 16th District Representative Jim Costa is well-positioned to represent his constituents and the agriculture industry on many of the day's key issues. While working with USDA to implement the 18 Farm Bill as a top priority, Costa says the outcome of trade negotiations is critical to the bottom line of farmers and ranchers. He does not agree with President Trump's use of tariffs on Canada and Mexico. Well, I've told the administration that I think that needs to be reconsidered. The fact is, is that while Canada and Mexico combined account for more trade than the next eight countries combined, uh, so this is very important, not only to Canada and to Mexico, but to uh, America. It's uh, 14% of our economy. So I've told uh, Secretary Purdue and, and uh, Ambassador Lighthouser that if we want to get agreement with U.S.-Canada-Mexico trade agreement, that as long as we hold these um, tariffs on Canada and Mexico, they're certainly not going to be excited about reciprocating because they're leveraged to hope that we implement uh, this trade agreement uh, is based upon us eliminating these steel and aluminum tariffs that are actually also hurting American industries, American uh, canning industries, American automotive industries, American industries that have to purchase aluminum and steel. And let's be clear, the basis for this, uh, the Secretary of Commerce had to indicate that Canada and Mexico constituted a security <laughs> challenge. I mean, Canada, who's been involved in every war with uh, the United States since the 19th century and been a good partner, I don't believe is a security threat to America. And that's not the way neighbors and partners treat one another, in my view. Do you think the majority in the House can support that agreement as it stands, or will you ask for some changes before we move to ratification? Well, Ambassador Lighthouser, to his credit, has spent a great deal of time on the Hill over the last uh, three weeks. I've had five different meetings with him, and he's got more that are scheduled. He's working closely with the different uh, caucuses uh, in the Democratic um, uh, group, and uh, I know he's working and reaching out to the Republican conference as well. Because the only way this is going to pass is on a bipartisan basis, and um, he knows that he's got to reach out. He's met uh, with Chairman uh, Richie Neal and uh, talked about the concerns that uh, members of the Ways and Means Committee have. He's also uh, reached out to um, in meetings that I've been out with the Blue Dogs, with the New Democrats, and with the Hispanic Caucus. 
and uh, some of the issues that people have raised obviously deal with first uh, Mexico implementing the new labor standards that they've agreed to. We hope that will take place in April. But many members, uh, I can tell you in the Democratic Caucus, care about whether or not the, the new labor standards are good, but are they enforceable? Because you can have good um, requirements in law in another country, but if they're not enforced, then they really don't mean anything. And I know uh, the ambassador also has reached out uh, to the speaker uh, to ensure that uh, he understands what the issues are that uh, she is concerned about. Uh, this is, is, is a heavy lift. Let's make no mistake about it. The administration bears a, I think, significant responsibility to prove and demonstrate why this will be better. And at the same time, we need to understand that if we don't, uh, and, and this is, I think it's correct to say, a significant improvement over the existing NAFTA, to be clear, it is although a lot of these agreements had been a part of the TPP effort, but nonetheless, they are important improvements uh, for American workers. The fact is is that um, we uh, need to ensure that these improvements are enforceable and that we have a fair uh, playing field for American workers and for our markets both in Canada and in Mexico. The president is going to have to, I think, make a strong case on why this is better, and he also needs to uh, make sure that people understand that if we don't reauthorize this new trade agreement, that one of the alternatives is that we have no trade agreement, and many believe in terms of the impact of our economy that could be far worse than the existing NAFTA agreement that we have today. There's more than one that have suggested they don't necessarily like the president's trade tactics using tariffs, but at the same time recognize that there is a need to resolve trade differences with countries like China. Those negotiations are ongoing. Congressman, how important for your state, for your district, to see the trade war with the Chinese result? That's very important. You see the 300 commodities that we grow in California, and uh, whether you're talking about the ability to export uh, our nut products, whether we're talking about almonds, pistachios, or walnuts, we see the increase that the tariffs have created in terms of the reduction of, of, of the price that we're getting for those products. But it's not only that. It's dairy. Uh, and it's uh, beef, and it's a host of other commodities that uh, impact all of American agriculture, including sorghum and wheat and corn in the Midwest. And while I don't necessarily think that this was the best strategy in dealing with the practices that the Chinese have engaged in, and by the way, the president's correct. The Chinese have uh, violated a host of international agreements uh, that involve the World Trade Organization, that involve uh, agricultural products that we send, uh, that involve copyrights agreements and espionage, not just from an industrial st- standpoint in which they've stolen technology, but also uh, from a national security perspective. So uh, I don't disagree with the president on those points. And as a matter of fact, previous administrations, both Obama and Bush, had the same, very same concerns. They had different strategies. Uh, the TPP with the other 
uh, 11 countries was uh, set up so that we would have a greater trading block to leverage the Chinese in that way. But now that we're in the middle of these uh, this trade war or trade poker, uh, tariff poker, whatever you might want to uh, call it, uh, I hope that we don't back out now that we've got the Chinese attention. And I think Ambassador Lighthouser, who knows the Chinese for over the last 30 years, and he's been, I think, very strong, uh, that just because they offer to purchase some more of these commodities or those commodities, that then we say, okay, well, that's fine, and then we forget about it. Because now that we've created the dislocation, we've created the economic impacts that have been very harmful uh, to agriculture in many parts of the country, especially uh, here in California, that we uh, not, uh, you know, reach a, hastily reach an agreement after we've taken this much pain and angst without having a clear playing field about how the Chinese will engage in their trade practices in the future and provide the sort of level playing field and the fairness that uh, we believe that uh, the Chinese need to demonstrate to be good trading partners. More than one agriculture commodity group have shared that labor is their top issue. And in the judiciary, the subcommittee chair on immigration, uh, Ms. Lofgren from California, and I think Mr. Panetta from California as well, would like to see some movement on uh, an ag labor bill. What do you know of their effort, and where do you stand on their effort? Well, I'm supportive of, of their effort. Uh, I have, uh, since I first came to Congress, been a uh, uh, believer in comprehensive immigration reform. And in 2013, the Senate voted out a bipartisan effort, 68 to 32. And if uh, Speaker Boehner had brought that up, although there was opposition within his conference, I believe there were 60 to 80 Republicans that would have voted for it, and there were certainly 180 Democrats. And most of these immigration issues that uh, we're dealing with today with this broken system would have been resolved, not that it was a perfect bill. Now we're going back to trying to deal with um, immigration reform in, in, in um, various pieces. The effort that uh, my colleagues Zoe Lofgren and Jimmy Bennett are engaged in, I think, are very important. A uh, hearing will take place next week among uh, agricultural representatives and farm labor representatives. And I hope that's the basis for uh, reform that will allow us to have a stable workforce because it's a real problem. What we have to do as members of the agricultural uh, committee and as the chairman of the subcommittee on livestock and foreign trade is to ensure that not only those farming today but the next generation of farmers and and one of the things that concerns me is the ability to pass on that family farm and to keep the next generation motivated and focusing on agriculture because the age of the American the average American farmer is getting up there and um, that's worrisome for me. So we've got to create an opportunity and climate so that uh, the next generation and that young farmers who want to get engaged can actually be successful. Certainly, you mentioned the implementation of the new Farm Bill, and obviously dairy policy is one that was much needed. Do you think this policy that's been approved is adequate, or are we just in a reality phase of economics of scale making it difficult for the small dairy producer? Well, that's a question that's going to be uh, asked uh, on our subcommittee hearing at the end of April after the Easter break that will be on uh, the impacts of the uh, losses that uh, dairy 
producers around the country have, have faced. And it's just not small producers. It's the uh, mid-size and larger producers as well. We've had over 200 dairies go out of business in California in the last five years, and this is where some of the largest dairies are in the country. Uh, the equity that has been lost in, in in the American dairy industry is, I've been told by some, approaching $20 billion uh, and more. So uh, the farm bill that we created, uh, obviously, we think is very helpful to small dairies. Uh, and we are trying to provide additional uh, support for all dairy producers, uh, regardless of their size. But uh, it is a very difficult uh, uh, set of circumstances when input costs in the dairy business, you know, vary anywhere from 12 to $14 per hundredweight and in some places 16 to $18 per hundredweight. Uh, and, you know, you can only stay in business so long when your input costs exceed the amount that you receive on a monthly basis. It's a challenge. And, mm-hmm. and so at the hearing that we're going to be holding in late April, we're going to be looking to see the impacts that uh, small dairies and dairies of all sizes are feeling around the country and how much help this new farm bill will be in its implementation to dealing with some of those challenges of these uh these input costs and, and whether or not they can uh, successfully stay in business. Speaking of hearings, one of the most contentious issues out of the development of the 18 bill was work requirements for those that would receive SNAP benefits. It seems the administration is moving ahead with that uh, through the Department of Agriculture, and Representative Fudge is uh, having a hearing on that in a week ahead. What are your thoughts on this issue? Well, everybody uh, should be encouraged in this country to work. And uh, I think that's uh, a part of any any um, constructive uh, person that uh, wants to succeed, right? But we know uh, whether it's through seasonal employment or whether it's uh, the working poor are uh, folks that uh, have a 40-hour work re- week that are reduced to 20 hours a week that uh, food stamps, uh, i.e. the SNAP program, is America's safety net. And uh, the work requirements that were offered uh, by my Republican colleagues in the House Ag Committee uh, were simply not workable, period. And so uh, Congresswoman Fudge has a, a, a real sense of this. We established uh, five years ago when this issue was uh, very up and, and, and focused pilot projects that started here in California and we've expanded to nine other states in which we've looked at the underlying causes of trying to get healthy, able-bodied people between the ages of 18 and 55 off of uh, assistance and becoming self-sufficient. And what have we found? Well, uh, the majority of those uh, between that age group, 18 and 55, able-bodied, don't have a high school diploma. Uh, the uh, majority of them have children. And so to ensure that they get on their feet, uh, you've got to have a, a, an effort to ensure that they get the education necessary so that uh, they can get a, a good-paying job that uh, makes them uh, self-sufficient. And when they're getting their education, as you're looking to get them into job placement, 
there's got to be an issue of child care because if they don't have the ability to take care of their children, they certainly can't get the education necessary and the job training to get them on their feet. That's just the reality. And these 10 pilot projects in 10 various states across the country are verifying that and seeing under the theory of, you know, one size doesn't fit all, how's the best way to deal with trying to make sure that we maintain a safety net for for working poor people and at the same time uh, create the opportunities for them to become self-sufficient and no longer in need of, of assistance. As we wrapped up March, the disaster bill was still stalled in the Senate. There would be funds in there for California, uh, for the Southeast, and for others that have suffered national disaster. How important to get this policy done for your state? Very important in California. It's very important around the country. And the floods that we have occurring uh, in the Midwest and um, the other disasters uh, as a result of weather conditions uh, are impacting uh, regional areas and the communities within those regions. Uh, I talked with a number of the senators this week about moving forward in the Senate. They're trying to um, get it together. Uh, and, uh, you know, disaster relief is something that uh, knows no boundaries. In California, uh, you know, we've had everything from floods to forest fires, to droughts, about the only thing we haven't had here is the plague. And clearly the impacts to communities that I represent are significant, and therefore uh, providing the sort of disaster relief in those areas that have been hard hit by the fires and uh, areas in which we've had flooding in uh, Southern California are important. Uh, All Americans uh, believe that when a disaster comes, that uh, our uh, our government will be there to respond and provide the appropriate sort of relief at the local, state, and federal level. And we need to do our part on the federal level. We need to get this bill out of the Senate and ultimately to the president's desk to provide those monies, whether they be in California or elsewhere in the country where they're most needed. Congressman, is there a place and is there a time to address climate change in the Congress? And is the Green New Deal the answer? Yes. Uh, climate change is a reality, and for those who um, care to ignore it, I believe they do so at their own peril. Uh, we see it impacting California agriculture in terms of the cycles of uh, rainfall and snowpack. Um, and uh, we also see it uh, having uh, a uh, as part of the challenge with the, the fires that we've been having. But every region of this country and throughout the world, climate change we see is occurring. Uh, I, I think anybody who follows the science knows that the climate has always been changing. The only question is is how much we're contributing to it. Let me tell you something. 200 years ago, there was 1.7 billion people on the planet. Two years ago, uh, we clicked over 7 billion people. And they estimate by the middle of the century, we'll have another 2 billion people on the planet. And we're putting a lot of stuff in the air and a lot of stuff in the water. And to think that that is not having an impact uh, is, I think, uh, denial. And denial is not a river in Egypt in this case. It's a real problem for those who ignore it. And so uh, U.S. agriculture and uh, industries throughout the country can do something about it. Let me tell you something. In California, the fifth largest economy in the world, we have almost 40% of our energy renewable. 
if you count hydroelectric power, uh, it's actually over 40%. This is the fifth largest economy in the world with 40 million people. And we've been able to, uh, in 20 years, um, put over 40% of our energy needs in the renewable category. Just think if we could do that across the country. And think about the economic benefits. And think about the cleaner air and the cleaner water that would result in doing that. We're not going to uh, resolve uh, climate uh, changes and the impacts it has to agriculture and to our economies and to our quality of life overnight. But if we come together on a bipartisan basis with, as my mother used to say, common sense, an abundance of common sense, working together, uh, we can do these things. The big New Green Deal is aspirational, and the goals uh, that it uh, attempts to uh, uh, achieve are areas that we must work on. But in reality, uh, it's not, I think, the best strategy on how we get there. Congressman Costa, we want to thank you very much for taking time to spend with us on this edition of Open Mic. It is Open Mic, and the tradition is, sir, that you have the last word. Well, I want to thank you and your listeners. Uh, it's, AgriPulse is very important in uh, ensuring that people uh, know what's taking place in our nation's capital, and you do a terrific job of informing the public and, and American agriculture, and for that we're thankful. Uh, as a third-generation farmer uh, from California, uh, my grandparents came to this country, and uh, none of them spoke English, and three of the four of them were illiterate all of their lives. And my, my, my dad and my mom and my aunt and uncle, um, working with their father, were able to establish a dairy farm, buy land here in the San Joaquin Valley, and uh, be successful. They achieved the American dream. And now in the third generation, uh, their children are, are continuing to farm that land. But it's a different farming than, than my parents and my grandparents did. The world has changed. Change is constant. And that's why I believe... And I put my hope and faith uh, in the aspirations and the dreams and, most importantly, the hard work of the American farmer. Nobody does it better. Our thanks to California Congressman Jim Costa, our guest this week on Open Mic. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by Syngenta. Syngenta Products and Services, helping farmers increase their return on investment. For AgriPulse, I'm Jeff Dowling.